Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Hussein, Nick, Eve, and Baz to discuss the skills and traits required to break into the crypto industry. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's just work our way around the room to make some introductions. So, Baz, if we start with you. Thanks for having me, Rachel, and uh, good to meet you guys. So, uh, yeah, brief intro. So, my name is Baz Furby. I'm the CMO at a um, Web3 startup for uh, the gaming industry uh, called Disruption X. Also, host a podcast called Decentralized. And I guess there's a brief intro into the background. I worked in e commerce for 10 or 12 years uh, before stepping across into Web3. Um, I helped build a number of different tech businesses and, and startups in the space. And um, yeah, now very much in the kind of Web3 gaming world, which I'm sure we'll dig into in a bit more detail. Good stuff. Thank you. Uh, Nick, if you can come to you next. Hi, my name is Nick Morley. I'm the founder and CEO of Export Digital Incorporated. Uh, we're a BC-based or British Columbia, Canada-based uh, corporation and the company behind the development of Action Coin. Uh, Action Coin. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. Who's? Watch everybody and thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a career technologist, uh, mostly in financial services. I guess since about 2009 when I discovered Bitcoin, it intrigued me a lot and have been in and out of crypto ever since, but professionally in fintech and crypto since about 2017. And now I'm a technologist at large. I help startups go from zero to one. Perfect, thank you. Eve, if we could come to you to give a, a bit of an introduction to yourself and your experience. Absolutely. Uh, can you hear me well? Sorry, my audio is a bit tricky, but I hope you can get me. Uh, yeah, Eve we can hear you. Uh, most recently had tutored for the Oxford Blockchain Strategy Program at the Side Business School, University of Oxford, and the Chief Technology Officer of Water Protocol or Polkadot, which is a green commodities exchange, and general partner at Surfwalk Ventures, the venture incubator that incubates through a launchpad model uh, Launchpad DAO model, um, startups in Near, Solidity, Solana, uh, Ethereum, and increasingly other networks like StarkNet. Jason. Thanks, everyone. So now we're all introduced. Um, let's move into the topic. So you all have a question or statement on the skills and traits required for the crypto industry. As usual, I'm going to work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So if we get started, can we start with you, Nick? Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. So basically, in terms of skills required uh, these days, um, uh, we are a startup, as I mentioned earlier, so I'm having to take off my hat in a lot of cases. I'm starting to distribute the uh, the workload to people that are smarter than myself uh, in their respective skills, um, somewhat of a generalist. So anyways, uh, we are uh, traditionally, about the last 28 years or so, I've been running a web development and hosting firm. Uh, so largely web 2.0 and um, I'm finding that obviously the skills required for you know to transition into web 3 are significantly different um, there's you know not every full stack developer out there understands web 3 and um, not every and, and they certainly don't have experience in it and uh, unfortunately it's evolving so quickly as well that they have to be you know quick learners so um, in terms of uh, base skill set and when we're talking developers uh, we're looking for obviously full stack developers. We're looking for uh, developers that have experience, but not only experience, but the experience that they can demonstrate as in past projects that they've done. Uh, and I'm especially interested in uh, projects that they do personally. 
right? So that they, they can open the book and show us what they do. Because I want people that are passionate about it, ultimately. And I want, to, <clears throat> I want them to um, basically, they need to be creative. They need to be inquisitive, right? Um, and, and they need to learn as they go in a lot of cases. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. I think one of the um, questions we spoke about was um, like hiring challenges within with getting into to crypto and and companies hiring challenges in, in general. Is it something you've experienced yourself? In terms of hiring um, challenges, I'm finding it's getting easier because more and more people are working uh, with these technologies. Um, assessing these skills is becoming more difficult for me because it's getting above my my uh, scope uh, so essentially um, that's that's my biggest challenge right now and it's also because I have a lot of people approaching me uh, for work uh, handling that those uh, inbound inquiries assessing them I'm, I'm run you know I don't really have time to do all of that so I almost need to redirect in a lot of cases um, to fully and properly assess them perfect thank you Baz if we come to you um just to, to pose your question as well. Yeah, I actually just wanted to add a kind of question to the group around those biggest hiring, hiring challenges piece as well, because one of the things that I have seen in the industry is that there's a, it's actually about pay and salaries and, and all that side of things, right? And I think it's quite interesting that in some startups at one end of the scale, you've got the kind of sweat equity um, model where, you know, people are, are paid with tokens and, a, a, you know, a, an equity in the business, essentially. And at the other end of the scale, we've got highly um, skilled, experienced enterprise developers or marketers that, you know, arguably have a, a salary expectation and, you know, all the terms that come with that in us that maybe from a slightly more corporate environment. So, yeah, I wondered if the, if the group had a... Um, I had a perception really on on where the level is currently in the kind of crypto development space. You know, are, are developers expecting this uh, sweat equity approach with tokens, or is it more like a salary type basis? And and where does that fit in your in your businesses? Yeah, so I think I'll jump on that one just because uh, being in capital markets for the most part, I do deal with both, right? I do deal with the artists in university who jump on any boat, but I do deal with the person who took Java 20 years ago and expects nothing less than $250,000 to just look at your project, right? So <laughs> it's a tricky one. I think crypto inflated the income expectations of many people, um, but I do think that most technologists are still like ideology driven for the most part, especially on the younger spectrum. So if you have an idea that could really disrupt everything, usually that's leverage in my experience to get some of the best candidates at something less than half a million dollars a year, right? <laughs> Yeah, I and mean, I've seen the same thing. So I'm CMO, so more on the marketing side of things, right? And I guess there are marketers that come into these projects with the view of, you know, I'm excited by the growth that I can add to this business. And actually, rather than pay me fifty or a hundred thousand dollars a year, why not give me a token um, equity? And then, you know, on the scale of things, let's grow this thing together into a multi-million pound, uh, you know, enterprise. And they will be paid healthfully, um, you know, for, for that terms. Personally, for most of the hiring, I've done it somewhere in the middle. You know, it's not the super high salary and it's not the sweat equity token only approach. It's somewhere in the middle. And I think that's, um, you know, hopefully a sign of the market maturing. But, um, you know, I think it really depends who the hiring team is and how well they're funded and what stage the project's at. All, all of those types of things that kind of feed into that hiring challenge around salary expectation. 
I imagine as well, Baz, you're part of um, some of the, the hiring processes in general. And, and just to touch on that point, obviously, from a recruitment point of view, I often get candidates um, kind of mixed between wanting to be paid a a salary almost like a solid salary and, and everything secure and um, but obviously as you mentioned more and more people are now after you know the token side of things as well so I imagine from your point of view you also see a similar thing when you're speaking to potential candidates that you're looking to take on board it, it's a mix of of the two and almost a combination definitely as a mix yeah and I think um uh, depending whether this person is the first step into web three uh, versus maybe they might have had five successful projects that they've worked for in the past you know those two types of candidates come from a very different background different experience and um, sometimes the ones that have you know been through two or three projects already and have seen the value of the token equity and you know cashing in on that uh, uh, you know they, they want more of the same um, so yeah it's, it's very much a balance good stuff is that similar for yourself Nick obviously being based in a in a completely different location I just wondered whether you also operated the same um, I pay everybody in US dollars or USDC. Yeah. Um, we don't offer tokens uh, as pay. Um, I think most people that I deal with, um, US dollars keeps the, or fiat keeps the lights on. Um, and so, you know, I don't try to mess around with that. I'm just looking for good people that do good work, right? And, um, and, you know the token thing you know it's it's all it's a pie in the sky really i mean it's based on it's based on your success in the future and we know that these things are not guaranteed and i i want to make sure that my the folks that work for me are are well paid for what they do yeah. perfect thank you uh who's will come to you next i know you had a question you wanted to pose um before i go into my question if i can just uh, contribute a little bit to that last one so uh, I'm in my fourth startup over seven years and none of them have been ICOs. We've always offered options, uh, equity in the companies, and that hasn't always worked out right? that, 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 to the expectations that the, uh, the people that we hire necessarily want. But when it does work out, it's amazing. Okay, so um, the US is a really odd place to hire at the moment. The salaries are so out of whack compared to the rest of the world, it's incredibly different, right? So we don't hire from the US, we don't hire technical talent from the US, we hire other talent, but not technical from the US. It's too expensive. And I think what's really interesting is that during crypto winter, the market is now being flooded with a lot of people from the crypto sector. I'm just waiting to see how that impacts salaries in the US. Latin America is quite fascinating for us, right? Because the quality of the engineers that you find in that continent is very high. The salary expectations are almost an order of magnitude less compared to the US. So there are options out there for a um, on, on a global scale. You just make, need to make sure that you've got the right people doing the recruitment who are willing to jump through the hoops to make international hires and that you also set up your organization to work remotely in an efficient way. If you can do that, then you could keep your costs down, keep your employees happy, and also incentivize them to contribute to uh, your project, which I think is a winning combination, but it's a difficult one. Um, my own question for the, for the group is, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the layer one blockchains, and there was a report, unfortunately I can't remember the name of the report, but it was showing how developers leave from one 
uh, level one blockchain to another one. So Solana, for example, has had some difficulty, right? And we've seen an exodus of uh, crypto talent moving from that project to other projects. So I'd be really interested to know which projects uh, the, the group here think, layer one projects group here think are going to attract talent in the next two or three years. I think I'm going to jump on this one just quickly and just confirm that uh, rumors of Solana's debt are greatly exaggerated, right? Just to be clear, uh, Solana is a very, very gung-ho ecosystem. Most are ex-finance types, and all of them understand Rust, and not many um, projects are based on Rust specifically. So please don't underscore or don't underestimate Solana right now. It could come back very hard. Terra is dead. That's for sure. Uh, and I've hired two Terra, ex-Terra Labs developers as a result. And as you said, greatly deflated prices from a few months ago. Uh, but I would say that what really interests me is the Near blockchain. So to be fair, we do have funding from the Near Foundation. I do have to disclose that. The Near blockchain seems to be the next runner up to what Solana was about a year ago from, from my perspective. Perfect. Thanks, Eve. Have you got anything, Nick, that you wanted to add on that? Would you agree? Uh, to be honest, uh, in terms of layer one blockchains, um, I don't really subscribe to any particular one. Uh, I don't think that any particular one is a clear winner at this point. Uh, Ethereum is too damn expensive. I'll say that straight up. We don't even use it. Uh, you know, I, I've, I dropped it or I created a, a token minting contract on there recently. It was like 90 bucks. And, uh, you know, that cost me... You know, I know Polygon's layer two, but that cost me about a dollar on Polygon, and it's the same thing, but it's faster, right? Um, so we we defer to Polygon layer two. Um, Avalanche is interesting, but I don't get their whole two token model or two. I I, I just didn't, I haven't got into that. Um, yeah, those are the main ones. Um, Binance is is also cheap and fast, um, and you know what? They're decentralized. They're public blockchains. They're basically they do the job. People love Binance uh, Smart Chain. People love Polygon. So and why not? So I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here and say that my most exciting layer one is called Bitcoin, uh, and I'm excited to launch Bitcoin staking NFTs sometime soon. I just need to figure out why. <laughs> yeah. No, just on, a, class, on a on a one quick note on that is um, are they moving? Are they going to have any sort of EVM? interoperability or anything like that so that yeah there's always been so if you look at a blockchain called rootstock they've always had uh something called federated byzantine fault tolerance which means staking really on top of bitcoin and rootstock is the furthest blockchain project there's also stacks which is on top of bitcoin more of a layer two to a layer one being bitcoin but you've seen the bitcoin nfts that have been essentially um, very very getting a lot of traction very quickly so i think that is the um fat tail risk or you know, sort of meteor that I didn't see coming in this sort of recovery from, from the bus time. Baz, was there something you wanted to add on that? Yeah, I was just thinking, um, in, I guess the question is where, which which chain is going to be, you know, attract the most talent. But I, I was thinking it the other way around, actually, in terms of like the talent, the development talent will probably have to build for whatever the consumers choose to be their chain of 
favor right so yeah ethereum is really expensive there's not going to be many transactional products built on it because it is so damn expensive but things like solana phantom polygon that are all in there Binance smart chain are all really usable consumer friendly chains and i think the more usage that happens on those things the more likely it is we're just going to have to flood that area with developers and build more things on them because you know that's where the customers go um so i think it's just another way of kind of looking at the like the future is um is following that consumer trend and hopefully the adoption that comes in this next um, kind of big run-up um out of the the nasty bear that we're in right now thanks buzz who said i'd be quite keen to to hear your thoughts on it and your opinions um on layer one specifically uh yeah i think there's going to be a lot of change going on I, i think it's going to be quite volatile it just feeds back for me in terms of the reason I asked that question is like, what are the skills differences, right? And, and I think, you know, you said Rust, for example. So we've got Rust, we've got uh, Solidity uh, for smart contracts in terms of skills that you're going to need. Um, we, like the last three projects I've had, we still use Go. And Go, I think, is, is there's implementations of Go for the Lightning Network, for example. This Lightning, for those that don't know, is a layer two technology on top of Bitcoin that actually makes it usable in my opinion for for sending uh, bitcoin instantly at low fees globally um so from from those languages so if, if you if wish specifically what kind of tech t- uh, tech skills do you think are going to be in demand in the next year or two indirectly from which these blockchains are attracting developers and which are yeah, I think my answer to that would be bridging skills, essentially. Bridges, interoperability is the biggest. No one wants to make a bad ecosystem bet on the one internet page out of 17 billion trillion, right? And to me, blockchains are just internet, different websites so far. We're in the early internet, we're getting more and more websites, and soon it will be trivial which one you're on, right? So what I would say is interoperability-driven skills, bridge-building skills, uh, and obviously Rust and Go specifically, would carry any developer forward in any market from what I've seen. Rust, Go, and then if you're lucky, with React, uh, or God forbid, C++. <laughs> Perfect. And we'll just stick with you, Eve. I know um, your question was mainly around um, the diversity side of things. So would you mind giving like an introduction into your question and, and the context behind it? Absolutely. So I teach at a number of universities, engineering universities around the world, and unfortunately, sorry about the background noise, unfortunately, you know, it, typically the typical founder, let's just say lives in California, has never left for the past 100 years, and probably surfs, right? But, or his parents did, <laughs> or his parents did, to be fair. So how do you empower uh, the vast in- amount of talent that is non-traditional around the planet to feel comfortable leading into technology space, that's especially blockchain, which is such a financial derivative in terms of the ecosystem it is in. Um, and I think you need to have a hiring strategies that specifically targets non-conditional, uh, non-traditional candidates as part of your initial mix and really prioritize that um, in order to get that diversity. And usually you'll see that once you do, you actually for some reason get more ownership, more involvement. Like once unrepresented talent feels involved, they tend to go out of the 
out of their way to basically contribute as much as possible just to make that also an opportunity mm-hmm. worth their while, career-wise, right? So in terms of how I've made non-traditional talent feel comfortable joining, I, for example, had hiring rounds where I strictly made sure we interviewed strictly uh, women or women-identifying developers. It doesn't matter which area of the world they're based in. Just to add to that engineering culture that we have and make it inclusive in the first place, and then gradually create a, a culture that doesn't actually specifically come from one area of the world, really. Um, and that's what we're leading to the second question, Rachel, in terms of leading remotely, when you've got amazingly talented client from, like, you know, staff from Nepal, from Japan, from Brazil, and you're in New York. How do you make that team work at scale reliably? Rachel, sorry, I know we're supposed to jump into this later, but that's the question I'm probably going to jump into uh, next once it's my turn. Perfect. Thanks, Steve. Nick, I'd be quite keen to come to you on that. Obviously, I know um, I'm guessing it's something that, you know, part of your hiring plans with making the team diverse and also remote as well. What would your thoughts be on it? Uh, My entire team is remote. So I have um, developers and designers in Nepal, in Pakistan, in India, in, uh, I've got folks in Africa working on stuff. I've got uh, people here in Canada. Uh, very few. I have zero people working for me in, out of the U.S. Uh, but it is very. I don't. I don't really look at you know, where you come from. I look at mainly uh, the skills that you offer, the experience that you offer, um, and you have to be a team player. You have to be a good person. Um, you know, I, we have to click. Um, and then there's the challenges around time zones, and that's just something that we're having to adapt to. Um, you know, we're I'm using or we're using Basecamp more, and that's making things easier because the team members are able to communicate with each other. They're able to share files with each other while I'm sleeping, you know, in a lot of cases and, and do stuff, and things can keep on going. Um, yeah, that's my experience. That's my outlook on it. Yeah, and I come from a, should we say, the marketing side of things. So it's not about finding the right development time, uh, development resources, but it is um, designers, copywriters, marketers, uh, you know, in in that space. And um, yeah, I've managed kind of fully remote teams for the last number of years and actually see that as like a real benefit because in a strange way, I can think of that workflow. We've got people in, you know, certain time zones, should we say, I've got guys in Malaysia, Thailand, that are working on certain um, attributes or certain pieces of work and then once that workflow is complete later in that day I've got the whole working day for my designer who's then based in Argentina or uh, got going uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil and um, in a 24-hour period we can actually do both tasks whereas you know if we were both sat in the room where I am in Oxford in the UK uh, that would actually take two days to do so we can work, organize our workflow to benefit that remote time frame and um, start to schedule our work around people's locality and I think it means we get a lot done it means we've got a finite window where we can meet together at a, a reasonable time you know some early mornings and late nights I guess but um, yeah it actually works in your favor sometimes if, if you can bring the team together trust that people are working in those you know remote environments and getting the work done perfect I just wanted to um touch a little bit more on the diversity side as well so obviously helping clients to to make hires across different technical teams I often now well probably more often than not get clients you know come to with specific requirements and say our team is for instance full of males we need to have more females to the team and it can be quite controversial at times because some clients are, <laughs> on one hand clients may say you know um it's a really good thing and when I'm speaking to candidates they're like all for it but I'm always very conscious on how 
I word that to people as well. You know, this this company only want to hire females. It's it's very controversial, especially in in, in today's society. So, who's I I imagine you've had kind of a similar thing in the past as well, managing managing um big tech teams. Have you had any thoughts or experiences similar to that in the past? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look in large enterprises, and I've worked for large investment banks in the past they really push this like they've got quotas and they need to meet them you could probably get away with that in a large organization but for a smaller organization or a startup to next point i think you, the founder and the mission dictate the culture and you need to look for people that fit into that culture and you don't care where they come from because it's so valuable when you when you find people truly uh are aligned with everyone else that you hire that's where you maximize productivity and you know frankly wherever you find wherever you find those people you're really lucky to just find them i mean just recently we must have gone through 2 to 300 candidates just to find one uh, that that fitted with our particular culture which i always describe like successful startups are a high performance culture that really demands i mean to Baz's point if you've got 2 hours of where where you overlap with someone on the other side of the world those 2 hours need to be maximized right like otherwise you'll end up spending loads of time in odd hours trying to kind of communicate with people but if you if you're if you have the right people the right people can fix the wrong technology and the wrong processes but the wrong people will break the right technology and the right processes so they they can be highly disruptive and larger organizations can take that hit you'd be amazed at how much damage a large organization can take uh, experimenting with different kinds of groups of people in a kind of simplistic way i would say meeting quotas but for the thing the challenge for smaller organizations is to really make sure you the, the culture the high performance culture that you're trying to achieve which is attracting the people to you in the first place that you maintain that as you grow. Yeah, I'm not sure if you guys are able to hear me, but they gave away free pizza here, so I do apologize. But if you can hear me, um, guys, one second please. Yeah, so I was going to say I had a situation where I had an initiative to hire more female developers because frankly, I've mainly run male run teams and I've then tried to change things in engineering. Uh, but we had a situation where my entire engineering team, mainly boys, same in the ex- same Xbox gaming group, they all quit the minute one female was added, you know, uh, and, and, and that's also a thing you need to pay attention to. Developers are interesting creatures sometimes. So what I had to do is to find more Eastern European female developers who were slightly less California, I'm going to say, or social. Uh, and somehow that also actually quite worked in getting, OK, fine, you're, you're safe. I can speak to you. I've had to make people feel safe talking to women. I've had women <laughs> that I had to train in talking to guys. Um, I think leadership, as you said, Hose, is, is key. If the leadership is doesn't care about diversity, no one else will at the lowest level, no matter how beautiful the brochures are. But if the founders do, it's, it becomes a rule for progression of the company, to be honest, as a way of life. Thanks, Eve. I think um, from your point of view, Baz, as well, coming from that recruitment background and also managing teams, you've probably experienced something similar yourself. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think I've necessarily rolled. I've been fortunate enough to not roll into any of the um, challenging circumstances that this conversation can bring. Um, I think I've always been on the on the favourite side of like let's absolutely have our preferences to bringing you know all, all sorts of diverse minds and, and cultures into the business. But I've never had to face necessarily the harder discussions about mandates and you know rules that necessarily like you know make that thing happen. Um, I, I would push back in an organization that kind of mandated certain hires for sure. Um, I think the right, getting the right character of personalities is much more valuable than, you know, ticking boxes. Um, but I absolutely see, you know, the benefit as a, as a diverse team, you know, culturally and uh, gender wise as well, you know, making sure that you've got those different um, skill sets in mind, different backgrounds and different experiences as well, um, which probably feeds in some of the other discussion around like where people come from um, skill set wise to break through into Web3. I think uh, a diverse set of backgrounds is really valuable as well because different skills. Perfect. Thank you. Hus, I just wanted to um, touch on a point that you made earlier as well. You mentioned sometimes it's a it's a case of sifting through between two and three hundred different candidates to find the right person. Just out of interest, how do you guys um, tend to go about that? Is it do you sit certain like tests that you get candidates to go through? Do you screen everyone, or, or what are your thoughts behind kind of narrowing down what skills you guys actually need? Uh, you touched on a really interesting point there, which is testing, right? Um, we decided, and I, and I think it's the right decision not to bother with tests. Um, they can be gamed, number one. And we found that, you know, suddenly in interviews, people would know the test questions and the answers kind of better than I did. Right? So what we do now in terms of selection is, is really pair programming. And it go, this comes back to the culture. What I'm really interested in is making sure that when we hire someone, they get along with the rest of the team and they can work together. So the earlier you expose the rest of the team to this individual and ask them to like to work together on something, describe their work processes, what, how are they thinking about things, um, it that's a far more guaranteed way that when you this and, and there's a, there always has to be more than one person involved in the hiring process the worst hires are hires made by one individual typically the CEO <laughs> I say that as an executive myself but if one person is involved in hiring you're guaranteed sooner or later the wheels are going to come off you're going to have the wrong people there so if you can expose uh, the, your technical team to the to, to the potential candidate um, get them involved in what we call a pair programming exercise that really works for us because you can see if you can work with them or not um, and then assuming that goes well, there are other criteria that you know, have the conversation around um, expectations of working in the kind of environment that you've created. So um, I always try and scare people a little bit. I kind of say, look, if you're when you work for one of the companies that I advise, you're going to go onto Slack at nine o'clock or whatever time during the day, and there'll always be someone working. And you'll always find people. And part of that is because they're around the world, but sometimes it's because they're, they've been working 12 hours on something that they really enjoy doing. And that's the kind of people that we're looking for. So if you've got commitments, like doing a PhD on the side, probably not the right company um, to work for in a, in a high-performance startup. But, but yeah, I would definitely say hiring is the most difficult 
challenge for a startup. And if you hire the wrong people, you could kill the company very quickly. Well, you can fire them quite quickly as well in a startup, right? So, I mean, that's kind of my schedule. Um, I would say that exactly. I do the same. I, I'm, a, you know, it's rare when the founder is probably better than most people in the company at developing, but that also has its own issues where the founder thinks they know everything about technology, right? So I'm, I'm waiting to have to deal with that. But uh, Hoost, you have a beautiful idea that I use here, pair programming. You know Rust? Let's make something in Rust together. See how you think, right? That to me has been a culture fit question, meaning are you willing to jump into something unstructured and make something out of it? But also, it doesn't matter if you fail, as long as you can explain your reasoning and work with us, you know, usually that's the approach that I take. And who's, I can guarantee you, I've had half of developers drop off from the offer to pair program together, <laughs> no matter how beautiful their CV, right? <laughs> which is good for both parties, right? Because you don't want to hire someone. It's bad for the candidate if they if they have to be let, you have to let go of them after three months. You want this to be a long-term win-win, 18 months to 10 years, however long it takes, right? But yeah. Thanks, guys. Baz, I just wanted to move to your question. Yeah, and I kind of touched on this topic for almost one of my answers earlier. So um, I, was, I was thinking about the prerequisites of knowledge that are required from your hires. And um, in my world, in marketing, you might think, well, that's okay, Web3 marketing experience or, you know, maybe some Web2 marketing experience that can then can tra transition across. But the reason I, I placed the question is I, I've done a, quite a few NFT proje projects themselves, you know, where it's like um, building a community, understanding what makes that community tick and some of the best people that I've worked with or had the fortune of um, you know hiring have been people that are not marketers at all but they just fell in love with this space 18 months ago they've kind of lived and breathed it and they know what's making the market tick and they, they actually have no marketing experience but the, god they know how to make an nft drop work um and i wondered whether that same thing happens from a technical environment because you know most of you guys are more on the kind of tech side of things um so i thought that'd be an interesting question to pose nick i'll come to you on that one if you got any thoughts uh, from uh, my perspective these days, we shifted uh, about a year ago uh, to focus on sports, uh, sports NFTs, digital collectibles. Uh, so I'm looking for people, you know, I, I've uh, hired a lovely lady that um, that specializes in sports marketing, for example, has experience working at a high level in that space. Um, I'm looking for people that are, you know, at least interested in sports, um, you know, in some sort of sports. Uh, you know, not so important with the developers, but maybe the designers, because that's the message and the, you know, the branding that we're putting out there. Um, the developers, um, yeah, I don't, I really, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> um, going back to the, the, the developers and one thing that I wanted to catch about our mention about that is in terms of the gender issue, uh, I'm finding that most developers are, are just the ones that I'm are coming across my desk, the ones that I'm talking to are male. Um, and I don't know why that is because I certainly wouldn't bat an eye if a great female developer came to me, right? Um, so that's, I don't know if that's just a thing, if they're not, uh, you know, not as many uh, women are interested in software development. You, you have to find, certain to you, Nick, you have to find the unicorns in my experience. You have to find the yeah. unicorns, they're there. Uh, it's just that there's a lot more pipelines to find male developers just naturally and socially than there are to find female developers who are equally expert, maybe just less 
likely to talk about their skill set or be in the usual crowds. So, so you do need someone in the company who's really good and increasingly better at targeting these non-conventional talents. Yeah. Because I can guarantee MSP, you, I'm doing the hiring, by the way. Oh, amazing. Unfortunately. Amazing. It's a gold mine. I hate to sound so mercantilist about people's aptitudes, but it is a gold mine when you have someone, let's say, from Nigeria who can code better than someone in, in Silicon Valley for 10 times less the price, but with that price being significant compared to their university uh, program and what they make possible, right? So I'm excited about this talent surplus around the planet, and you need to arrange yourself as a company to leverage that global talent while still knowing that your investors and your hedge fund clients or institutional clients will probably prefer a US-based or Canada-based or UK-based person to speak to, no matter who's yeah. involved in building what, right? That's right. Yeah, in terms of designers and marketers and social media people, women are pro proliferating those areas. And we've hi I've hired my many of them, but uh, developers, not so much. Yeah. Hoosh, I think you had a, a point you wanted to raise as well. Yeah, I just think to, to Baz's question, um, it's funny, right, because that's the three hires that I uh, that I remember the most were people who were who were musicians who had zero IT at all but um, we had the time to train them and they excelled in what they did like so they were all musicians that was the, the one trait that they had they, they were all part of bands and then decided that this career isn't going to work for me anymore and for some reason they make amazing uh developers over time or engineers over time and i think it's just because of commitment you know uh, and some level of intelligence around harmony maybe and seeing pattern recognition but it's mostly commitment to learn a musical instrument to, to any kind of technical level to a level that you could play in front of other people comfortably demands a huge amount of commitment and that equip, uh, commitment when it's applied to a technical problem yields the same kind of results amazingly so that's one of the experiences the other one is archaeologists i've had two archaeologists that change careers and it's, i think that's problem solving i think that really is kind of literally digging into things long and hard enough until you find the root cause of the problem so two kind of sectors to hire from if you have the time to to, to train them it's really funny that you say that because I'm smiling and nodding and you probably can't get that on the audio, but um, I, I also work with two world-class pianists who, you know, have that same dedication. One of them is, is doing a, a master's in AI and is a technical genius, but he takes a lot of time off to do um, travel the world and, and do, um, you know, play his music worldwide. So it's uh, yeah, fascinating that you identify that talent because we've, we've found a few of the same. It's the same here, and I think it's worth mentioning, uh, thanks to the point bias. Uh, I think elite talent globally has a choice. It doesn't matter what the market is, basically. And you can have naturals. Like, to be fair, I studied PPE, for example, uh, politics, philosophy, economics, before going into quantum machine learning, right? That's how I got started, <laughs> right? So you don't know where this aptitude or understanding will come from. Um, I know a sound designer from Montreal, um, he invented the AirPods spatial audio thing, uh, and I think he studied classics, you know? Talent is, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think the school system is increasingly irrelevant to the talent pipeline. It's really the person, the communities that they're part of and what they care about, in my experience. Thanks, guys. Would you agree with that, Nick? I think uh, life experience. 
people that are very have a very diverse background in terms of their you know things that they the places that they've worked the things that they've done um, that all plays into it um, also like people that do things within their community volunteer uh, charity that sort of thing um, I do actually look at these things when I'm looking at people's profiles and whatnot um, and then, of course, uh, they, you know, of course, they have to have uh, relevant experience too and skills in, in the area that we're looking for. Um, but it doesn't mean that they went and got a degree for it. I mean, most of the people that are working for me right now um, or working for us uh, do have degrees, but that's not a prerequisite. If you have the talent, um, then, then we're willing to look past that. Perfect. If something that um, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago was um, the challenge of, of managing distributed teams as a whole. Is that something that, that you've experienced yourself or kind of something that you wanted to pose to the panel? Absolutely. So the issue that I've had is that we've had the global team um, for a project before based in San Francisco. And we did have that global relay race where you would have an issue, raise it, someone would be sleeping, pick it up. Maybe something's done about it, but someone is accountable or two weeks anyway at the end of the sprint whether or not it was action um, and I've, I've noticed developers dropping off in some earlier experiences from that wheel uh, because they're not quite aware of the pace maybe they're not culturally fitted enough to know what's going on without having to read the slack channel right so the, the question that I had for the group was how do you retain engagement how do you retain engaged developers in a remote setting What's the structure you put around it, and how do you identify disengaged developers, and how do you act quickly on that? Who's would you mind kind of giving an input on that? Given um, you've come from a, a couple of CTO roles, I think you'd be you'd be best placed. Look, ideally, if you could meet people face to face and bring the team together once in a while, that works wonders, right? Um, it, it's it's the toughest thing I think to create a startup from scratch with remote workers. It's really difficult. I remember like a few years ago when we got hit by COVID, our team had already gelled. We had an office and like most of them had already gelled. So working remotely wasn't an issue. But then later startups that I worked at, we built the teams entirely remotely. And I think you just got to. Uh, fly them in and, and meet them physically. Either you go out there and meet them or they come and meet you. Once you do that a couple of times, uh, the, the, you can see the engagement on Slack or whatever metric you want to use. I mean, Git commits probably isn't the best one, but if you want to be brutal about it, you can do that as, as well. I, I think what I, what I like to see um, I, I'm comfortable in an environment where there's like verbose chit chat on, on Slack. Some people aren't. You know, some people will find it incredibly disruptive but the new features like being able to huddle in, in in a group and telling people to take ownership i think another key uh, prerequisite that we look at in any in any startup hire is that we tell people that we're looking for owners not employees looking for people who will you know if there's a problem they'll go and harangue whoever they need to to get information that that's an owner as opposed to an employee who waits to be told what to do um, and there's a role for employees, don't get me wrong, but it's probably when you're 100 people in the organization, not when you're 20 people in the organization. So I, I think that the, the first 20 to 40 hires, you need owners, you need people who are committed to the mission. And then you'll find once you've had that conversation with them face to face and you've brought the team together, it should begin to... Like hum like a, uh, a well-tuned machine. So, so two simple answers here. Make all developers stake your token. <laughs> 
and then occasionally meet them in person if you can. Uh, but I, I see your point there. These really lift the needle. But we, for DAOs, anonymous DAOs, you don't have a choice with in-person meetups, right? And that's the only thing that I've seen. Thanks, guys. Just a... I suppose a final question from me, from a um, from the recruitment side of things. A lot of candidates I'm speaking to now um, who are looking to get into the blockchain Web3 space, a lot of them don't have experience, but, you know, have dabbled a little bit with, with investments and that type of thing and kind of just want to um, see what's out there and would love to build a career within the industry. Just to kind of go around the room, what do you think um, you'd say to those kind of people and what skills and traits should they be doing now to build that career in the future? Baz, have we come to you first? Yeah, so I'd probably answer this one again from a, from a non-technical point of view, but I think somebody that has transferable skills that they've showed, you know, like I did, came from e-commerce before I stepped into Web3 um, and, and I kind of found a way across. And really, I think somebody that kind of lives and breathes that Web3 world and has used the tools, they have staked some money, they've, you know, bought different tokens, they've made, me, made a few mistakes and, and understand what a rug pull is or maybe experienced one, um, bought some NFTs, and, and if somebody's done all of that stuff and they've kind of, you know, lived with their own money and used the Web3 tools um, and they've got transferable skill set across from either marketing or business development, partnerships, all of these things. And I, I think that somebody that's lived and breathed it and kind of, you know, um, yeah, used all the tools, then, then they've got the credibility that they need to, to step across. I think if somebody comes to Web3 and they says, okay, um, I've worked in tech or, or whatever, I worked in marketing, but then they, they don't have an, a wallet, you know, they've never bought an NFT. I'm not sure it necessarily shows me that they really want to make that transition across. Um, so I guess that's the kind of key point I'm trying to make there is that, you know, somebody that's kind of found their way around and made a few mistakes and knows the terminology and isn't really starting from like the 101. Thank you for that. Nick, would you agree? I completely agree with Baz on that. Um, my experience and when I'm reflecting on on the team that I have now, the ones that have experimented in it have had exposure to it the most. They're the best members of the team, right? They get it. They understand it. Um, that's, yeah, that's all there is to be said about that. Perfect. Um, Eve, have you had a, a similar experience in the past? Have you got anything to add on that? Yeah, I would say, because I know I'm the eldest of nine, I always give advice to my younger siblings, like, how do you get into you're studying law? Go into tech. Medicine? Go into tech. <laughs> Engineering? Go into tech. Uh, what I would say is that, look, I think you need to decide if you are more comfortable in a structured environment or not. That's the first question. Uh, if you're corporate, if you're disclosed personality-wise to be in corporate, please go to corporate. That's, that's it's good for most people. Um, but if you want to go the startup way, you need problem solvers. You need people who are comfortable doing something I didn't know they would do when I woke up this morning and try and comfortably fail at it. So you need a bit of a mind scientist kind of sprinkle. You, you need curiosity. You need to be comfortable with a challenge and the unexplained. And based on that, the next layer would be learn a programming language online for free. There is so much free content online to get to the basics that I would expect someone who really wants to be in this career to frankly be working on their own thing on the side initially until they realize mine is better, you know? <laughs> so culture-wise, that's what I would go for. Uh, curious, enterprising, uh, comfortable with uncertainty, willing to learn the basics on their own and contributing. Adding values, I think that's a key part for me. If they want and care about how much value they add, 
important to feel it, everything else we can invest, like training, for example, like music, like it sounds like you've done. Perfect, thank you. And finally, Hoosh, I take it you've uh, you'd agree with all that. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I, I would say, yeah, 100% agree with all of that. Uncertainty is probably the, the main, being able to deal with uncertainty is probably the number one attribute that you need to survive in the crypto sector and the startups. I mean, the two compound each other, right? Because it's a huge amount of uncertainty. And I've seen people who like almost have nervous breakdowns in that situation. Um, so corporate is great for those people. Think about think about how much uncertainty you're willing to handle. And that means really younger people do better in this environment because you have you, you can suffer more kind of losses, more failures when you're younger than when you're older. And you also have less, less dependence, right? So you don't necessarily have a family. So you, it, you're far more resilient when you're younger and that puts you in a good position. So if you wanted to go into the crypto sector, what do you do? You immerse yourself in it. You eat, drink, and excrete crypto 24-7 as far as I'm concerned. Like you get onto Discord, do your own research, um, lose some money, you know, play around with uh, easily guessable public, sorry, private keys and watch how quickly you lose your cash so that you understand the system. It really is about pulling apart that engine. Um, and the more you understand by pulling it apart, you'll be able to put it back together. That makes you incredibly valuable to uh, everyone in the sector. Thanks, Hoos. And finally, Nick, I think you wanted to, to mention something there. I just wanted to say that um, your entire organization needs to be very security conscious uh, in this space. Uh, you almost need to be paranoid, uh, almost. I mean, I'm paranoid, but I don't expect my entire team to be paranoid uh, when it comes to security because we have, I have experienced, I can't even tell you how many attempted phishing attacks through every single uh, 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 means of contact through every single team member, uh, or at least those that are, you know, outward facing as team members, um, you know, it's just crazy. Uh, and we're targets for it, unfortunately. Uh, so, you know, that'll make us more resilient, but, you know, your right marketing, um, the software developers, everybody has to be conscious because they can get in through any, you know, I try to keep people somewhat disconnected, but they can get in. Uh, into your organization through share doc sharing and, and all it's things you just don't even expect sometimes. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for that. Some really interesting points discussed. Um, I think we'll leave it there, just running out of time a little bit. So this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast, and I want to take this opportunity to thank Eve, Hoos, Nick, and Baz for providing your insights into the topic. And thank you for listening.